0: Hi, and welcome to the Medicaid Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, David Smith. And in this episode, I have the opportunity to interview Dr. Jaywan Roo, who is the CEO of Geisinger, which is a health system that's based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, but whose reputation and renown extends far beyond the, the borders of central Pennsylvania. Dr. Roo came to Geisinger as an executive vice president and the chief medical officer in Uh, 2016 uh, and was installed as the interim CEO as the organization did a search and then ultimately installed as the CEO a a little over a year ago. Dr. Rue has a really impressive resume. He uh, was previously at Humana where he was the president, integrated care delivery and had his hands in what felt like just about uh, everything, certainly everything I had come in contact with uh, at Humana. Prior to that was at the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System, Kaiser Permanente, did a stint at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has been a MedPAC Commissioner, has had a robust career as a a physician and somebody who is, is steeped in health policy, operations, integrative care models and the like. On top of that, I'll just add Dr. Rue is, is just fundamentally a good guy. If you've never met him, but you see him across the the ballroom someday when we're going to conferences again, and, and you go up and introduce yourself to him, he'll give you a really warm smile. He'll, he'll have deep interest in uh, you as a person and uh, your background. I, I have found him to just be one of the most affable and, and kind healthcare leaders I've come in contact with in this industry. So I really enjoyed this conversation in particular and learning a bit more about some of the really important work that Geisinger is doing to support its Pennsylvanian communities and to to really create models that can be replicated in other parts of the country. Dr. Ruth, thanks so much for uh, taking the time out of your schedule.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave. It's good to join you.
0: It feels appropriate to start with kind of the general state of things, given where we are in 2020. As you think about the fall and the winter months, how are you preparing for that in Pennsylvania?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably a similar story to many others that you speak to, but here at Geisinger, it's been quite a year, obviously. As a baseball guy, I've used the analogy before. COVID has thrown us all a pretty big curveball, but if that's the curveball, I think what I could say about our teams, our teams have really risen to the occasion and demonstrated that we have a lot of curveball hitters. And it's been all about just being able to adapt and uh, be agile and uh, roll with some of these punches as they come along because things are pretty fluid and changing very quickly, whether it's capacity or supply chain or having folks kind of be adaptive and rapidly train in areas that they may not be as familiar with. We've seen all of that. I can honestly say that our team has truly risen to the challenge. So I feel blessed. I feel lucky. But that being said, we do see these trends that are more recent and they're concerning. And so we continue to you know, be out there communicating, try to get upstream into areas like the nursing homes and the schools and universities and communities and businesses to try to prevent as much as possible, to try to stem the tides of this thing. That's what's ahead for the months to come.
0: One of the things that's always fascinated me about Geisinger is it is both a a highly sophisticated system and and really well-regarded nationally, but also a system that has just a significant influence on what happens in rural Pennsylvanian communities. Talk just a little bit about how this COVID dynamic has shifted the way you interface with those communities where you're not as proximate. Have you been able to do things differently or uniquely during this period that you don't anticipate would have happened had it not been for COVID?
1: I think you've just touched on exactly one of the key themes for us. We've been around for over 100 years. We're sort of the home team, if you will. We are our communities and the communities are us. I think that's true of many health systems, but some of these communities are fairly rural and uh, many of them are small towns. But when you think about a pandemic and how it strikes a community, the hospital system can't see the boundary as just its four walls. And, and we're firm believers that you got to be out there proactive in the communities, educating folks, communicating around what they could do to mitigate the virus spread, getting out there into the nursing homes, which we don't own and operate, but whatever we can do to to reduce the spread there. We know that our community overall does better, which means we do better. And so that's been a big part of our approach, approaching uh, local businesses and making sure that as things reopened, that they were doing so safely and that they were prepared with knowledge and training. The other thing that's interesting, at least from our history is we were started in 1915. And within the first three years of our existence, of course, We saw the Spanish flu of 1918, and even prior to that, in 1915, we were born out of the typhoid epidemic. It's something in our DNA of how we're wired. The community and Geisinger pulling together to come through a public health crisis, it's almost in our blood. Interestingly, I was looking at some of our historical archives, and it's amazing how similar some of these dynamics of how Geisinger was responding to those pandemics in a very similar way to how we're responding today, whether it's education, communication, social distancing, ways to get upstream into the communities and prevent, prevent, prevent. These are the same kind of themes that we saw back then, and it's the same thing that we're working on now.
0: Uh, you had had a crystal ball, Dr. Reed, like two and a half years ago, and and you knew this was coming. What things would you have been doing to lay the groundwork differently? Or what things are you grateful you did do that ended up laying the groundwork that appropriately would have responded to the moment?
1: A good example is our focus on prevention. It's part of our structure as having our own provider-sponsored health plan as well as our clinical enterprise. We've been in that prevention game for really 35 years as far as having our own health plan having a team of nurses do proactive outreach around all of the prevention measures that traditionally kind of health plans tend to focus more on alongside some clinical entities. We had that infrastructure in place and that infrastructure really helped us during the pandemic to also become our care gaps team on all things related to COVID. So whether it was returning results or contact tracing that same team had already built the muscle memory if you will of making those outreach calls and and trying to prevent in the community i think another is just thinking about revamping care and redesigning care to get more of the care out into the homes and outside the the hospitals and so our geisinger at home program is a great illustration of that about two and a half years ago We started this program focusing on the sickest 3% to 5% of our patient population and actually bringing care and services into the home. So nebulized therapies, IV medications, you name it, along with a care team going into the home. That's one example, our mail-order pharmacy program, again, trying to drop prescriptions and medications at the doorstep so that people don't have to come into pharmacies and don't have to come into big campuses. I think those are the kinds of programs that really did miss a beat during this pandemic. We could still find ways to impact their health and uh, do so positively by getting care to them in the comfort and safety of their own homes. And so I think those are the kinds of things that really helped us catalyze and catapult very quickly early on in the pandemic. I'd love to talk
0: more about the Recovery at Home program. So, you described it as it's focusing on the sickest 3 to 5% of the patient population. And based on some of the stuff we pulled in advance of uh, our discussion today, it's showing that the outcomes have translated to a 43% uh, reduction in emergency room visits, a 48% reduction in hospital admissions. That's incredible. Uh, tell me why you believe those outcomes have occurred. Is it the treatment itself? Has it been the engagement, you know, digitally or through other means, with with primary care providers or mid levels? Like, what are the core things driving those reductions? Those are amazing numbers.
1: I will take a moment just to update those because we now have over nine thousand patients that have come through this model. The ER uh, reduction rates have absolutely held. It's probably forty to forty five percent fewer uh, ED visits. The inpatient admissions has diluted a little bit. We're probably finding more of a 25% reduction in patient admission rate, but still just monumentally impactful. I think the key thing there is that we've made something easier and patients are looking for the easiest option to pursue to get the care needs met. And so when that easiest option becomes going to the ER or, you know, things kind of, continue to decompensate, let's say, until they require an admission, I think that's the outcome you're going to get. With this program, we made it a lot easier for patients and their families because if they're in the program, they sit at home and the care comes to them. So this is notoriously a population that have multiple chronic comorbidities. It's tough for them to get out of the home and into hospitals or clinics. This model is all about bringing the care to the patient. And when you make that easier, great things have tended to happen. And and the patient satisfaction itself is a huge win. Put aside, you know, the fact that they land in the ED and the hospital less, the families have been well-receiving of this program. It's just been a home run. So we continue to expand it, and we think there's even more that we can build off of it.
0: Are these primarily uh, Medicaid, Medicare, commercial Uh, Does it run the gamut? What what line of business are are these 9,000 patients from?
1: So they're predominantly Medicare, and a good number of them are also dual eligibles. And so these are probably the more vulnerable chronic comorbidity kinds of patients. And I think that those patients do tend to gravitate towards the government programs, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid. And that's in fact what we're seeing. We do have a a pretty small sliver that tends to be commercial, but but less so there. I think it's predominantly Medicare um, and duals is what I would say.
0: Obviously, 40 to 45% reduction in EVs and a 25% reduction in admissions. Like, That's great. That's what we all should be aspiring for. You're also leaving money on the table as a hospital system, which argues against some of the economic motivators for hospitals generally. Uh, are you doing these under any kind of a different payment structure with um, federal government or Medicare Advantage plans? Are you doing it because it's just the right thing? T- tell me more about the, the economics and incentives because that's, you know, you, you still have big, you know, fixed assets that have to be paid for.
1: No, you raised a great point, Dave. I, the bulk of these are with our Medicare Advantage, our own Medicare Advantage product through our health plan. Think of it as our health plan care coordination, care navigation, care management services on steroids to now also include physicians and advanced practitioners. I think that's the best way to think about the model, but some of them are not our own Medicare Advantage members and some of them are on traditional Medicare and are within our ACO MSSP program. And so in either option, we have the right prevention mindedness around the business model that ends up fueling the program. And then of course, we do have some that are not in one of those models, but we just believe it's still the right care. And so we do have a segment of the population that is in that other category. But by and large, It's our own Medicare Advantage and the MSSP ACO.
0: Okay, which gives just such great flexibility and and being able to to shuffle your own economics to, of course, do the right thing. It's so important. Another program that caught our attention is the Geisinger 65 Forward program. Will you talk a bit about that?
1: We are super excited. 65 Forward is something we launched about a year ago. It is our senior-focused primary care model where... It's essentially VIP concierge level primary care services combined with wellness programming and activities all in a co-located framework. You walk into the clinic and it kind of feels like you're in a community center or maybe it's a yoga studio, but you've got knitting class, yoga balls, exercise equipment, coffee machines, snacks laid out you know, various community activities and classes taking place. And then you continue on in the clinic and on the back, there's something that resembles more of what you would typically see in a primary care model. The patient panels are limited to a fifth of the size of what you would see in most primary care practices across the country, which of course means there's a lot more time between you and the physician and a lot more time with the care team more broadly. And so with the first two sites that we launched last year and now with three or four more this year and then five or six more next year, the results we've seen so far have been unbelievable. Top decile patient satisfaction and quality and the rate of gap closure, if you will. Care gap closure is significantly higher. We're seeing ER use rates decrease by about 20% in that population Admission rates decreased by about 35% in that population. It's just been another home run all the way around. And I think this um, was part of our effort around redesigning primary care, which we did across our system, just in every primary care office that we had. But then at the same time, we said, you know what, it makes sense to introduce a few other flavors of primary care offerings alongside what you might call plain vanilla, you know, our geisinger at home program could be chocolate and 65 forward would be uh, strawberry you know we're adding these flavors because we know that one size tends not to fit all people have different expectations different care needs sometimes different social needs and different wellness needs and we're trying to create environments that everybody can slot into that meets each of their needs i
0: i want to pivot for a second the innovation you're doing the lessons you're learning Um, through these programs, the Geisinger at Home, Geisinger 65 Forward. How do those things port to vulnerable communities, or more specifically, those who might be under the auspices of Medicaid, where the the primary determinant for health may be less about age and more about a range of other factors? What's on the horizon for you in thinking about those communities and porting some of this unique innovation you've described um, in, in this discussion?
1: Yeah, I think for both of those programs and for many others, we probably have a disproportionate representation of dual eligible patients because I think the unfortunate reality, which you know, in this country is that disease burden and socioeconomics do have a correlation. And so I think the sicker populations, they do have other challenges alongside the clinical challenges, whether it's you know, in whether you call them the social determinants or other factors, you know, things like food, housing, transportation, we know for sure they play a critical role in health or the lack thereof in a community. And that's what we see both with 65 forward and with Geisinger at home. And so for example, with 65 forward, one of the things we are actively exploring is to introduce transportation into the model. We've specifically housed many of these sites and the ones that are slated to come as well in areas that you know might have seen better days but we get a full mix of people and some of the folks are well-to-do they they have means they don't need that transportation help but for the others they definitely do and so that's an element of the model that we'll probably be introducing over the next year we have a fresh food pharmacy for all of our patients and that's something we launched three or four years ago and we've seen tremendous progress there and the entry criteria there is if you have diabetes poorly controlled and you self-attest as being quote unquote food insecure, we enroll you in the program. It's not just access to fresh produce and lean meats, but it's also education and training around how to prepare foods more healthily. And when we've seen people go through that program, we've seen an average hemoglobin A1C drop of two points, which is double what we see when we optimize someone on their medications. And so those kind of programs all kind of, they fit together and they go hand in hand. It's not a coincidence that one of our first two 65 forward sites was co-located with our fresh food pharmacy. And so those are some of the things we're doing. I think the other one that to be honest, we haven't gained a lot of traction on is housing. We do all the things that a lot of other folks do as far as plugging people into resources and so forth. I think there's a play here to do something around the insurance benefit and housing, we haven't quite figured that one out yet. We have some ideas, but I think that is a, another key piece of the puzzle.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I know systems are finding ways way to leverage the insurance asset as a vehicle for effectuating that. I think it's interesting. A couple months ago, Governor Wolf put out uh, a document called the Whole Person Health Reform in Pennsylvania, and it's essentially calling for creating a couple of councils and then a health value commission. What are you aspiring for at the state level and being able to port some of the stuff you're learning, you know, working with health systems throughout the state to to really kind of lift Pennsylvania to where it really could be?
1: Yeah, we're big fans of what was conceptually laid out in the document that you're referencing. We're obviously eager, as are others, just to learn more detail and be involved in the process of co-creating what that detail might be. They've referenced a couple of the commissions to try to move healthcare in, in this in the Commonwealth, I should say, to be more value-driven and value-based. Those are things that are, are core to kind of how we think about the world as well. So in, in those ways, we're definitely excited. But I think we're still in the early innings of figuring out what that exactly means and what it looks like. and And you know, we've offered up and our eager support and willingness to participate. And I think if done in that thoughtful manner, getting the collaboration and and total energy, I think good things are ahead for the residents of Pennsylvania.
0: Well, I, I would tend to share that optimism just given what I know about people like you and others um, in the state. There's There's enough collective genius that if the governor can leverage that a platform and effectuate change through state policy. There's a lot of reason to be optimistic in the future. Our thoughts are with you and your colleagues as we enter the winter and uh, and prepare for the unexpected. Thanks for being with me today and we'll look forward to checking in in a a few months and seeing how
1: things are progressing for you all. That sounds great. And thanks again for having me, Dave.